Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on guitarist Steve Kimmock. Steve is a master musical improviser, equally enchanting on electric, acoustic, lap, and pedal steel guitars. Known decades ago as Jerry Garcia's favorite unknown guitarist, Steve is certainly well-known these days by fans of modern American psychedelic and jam band music. Steve is particularly known for his crystalline guitar tone, which has featured prominently in his own bands like the much-beloved Zero, KVHW, and Steve Kimmock and Friends. He's also graced the stage with Bob Weir in Kingfish, Rat Dog, and has performed in Grateful Dead offshoots The Other Ones, Phil Lesh and Friends, and The Rhythm Devils. He's also an occasional touring member of Hot Tuna and an instructor at Tuna co-founder Yorma Kaukonen's Fur Peace Ranch Guitar Camp. We spoke on the occasion of Zero's latest archival release, Not Again, a super high-fidelity live album, mixing Zero originals, choice covers, and special guests like Robert Hunter, Nicky Hopkins, John Kahn, and Vince Welnick. We cover this and a whole lot more. But first, a word of warning. At times, the audio in this conversation sounds like two tin cans and a length of string. I'd love to tell you we planned it that way, but no, you're hearing some audio artifacts from our phone connections. We thought, and hope you think, that the conversation wins out over the audio gremlins, and I hope you enjoy. I know we're recording already, but I got to tell you, sir, before we start, I get the interview, and you're supposed to call in, and you call in to this guy's radio show, and it's like a morning show, and everything like that. So I call in, and I am, it's Steve, I was calling in for the interview. And the guy's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he puts me on, and there's all this, like, bop it up, bop, bop, bop music, and it's www, whatever, in the morning commute. He says, hey, it's so good to have you on the radio. I hear that you just moved to um, Montana. And I said, I just moved to Pennsylvania. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. How's that? I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I like it. He goes, and he says, now, how does it feel to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I was like, Dude, I'm not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And at this moment, this like absolutely brutal moment of dead morning air, and the guy goes, Is this Steve Miller? (laughs) 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 I'm like, No, it's Steve Kimmock. Click. And that was the other one. I think the guy literally thought he was talking to Steve Miller, asking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and my ranch and my channels. That is, that is, that is pretty good, man. The guy's face, man. I could. I wish I could have seen it because he must have been so pissed. He had the total dead air, and he wanted Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he got me cannabis cup, fourth runner-up. But not what he was praying for. <laughs> cannabis cup, fourth runner-up. Exactly. Well, we are speaking on the occasion of the zero. I was going to say reissue, but I guess it's it's more than a reissue. It's sort of well bringing to light more of the music that came out a while ago, more complete versions of music that came yeah. out a while ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it's from the archives, you could say, or newly mixed and released, previously recorded, or however you would say that. So as I was digging into the playback on it, 
Troy, one, one of the things I wanted to share with you as a way to sort of kick off the conversation was, you know, my experience with Zero as a, as a much younger man was probably similar to a lot of people in terms of listening to a lot of the music on tapes, right? Like being part of the tape trading community. And, sure. Yeah. And that stuff all has a very specific sound after a while, you know, and especially if you play the tapes a couple of hundred times in your card cassette deck or whatever it is, spilling beer on it. And what, what really blew my mind was I felt like I heard the band for the first time in a lot of ways. The, the mix on the recording is just so beautiful, the way everything's separated. Even hearing a lot of the bass work in a way that I don't even remember it sounding that good when I saw the band live. It's really an incredible recording and an incredible mix. Really a revelation. I think if, if you're a longtime Zero fan, or whether you're just digging it now, really, it's, it sounds beautiful. It sounds yeah, beautiful. It, well, it was supposed to recording at the time, and what her engineer, Brian Risner, I hesitate to call him an engineer, he was, he was listed with the band members in Weather Report as recordist. Oh, wow. It's just, it's the very best people. we got our best guys on it. Literally, it's just the best people with the state-of-the-art stuff. And, yeah, the album technically is a masterpiece for me to listen to it because there's so much uh, there's a lot of martin fierro and i'm a lifelong martin fierro fan and i miss him every day since he passed so it wouldn't matter to me what the fidelity was just from a reminiscent listening or nostalgic listening or just the heart there's a a whole bunch of the content on the thing just brings me to tears yeah, there's a lot of soul, and yeah, I think the other the other thing that stood out for me that I had sort of lost touch with as a, as a listener was was Judge Murphy and his voice, and the, and to talk about the soul there, it was so wonderful to hear his voice. Again. Yeah, 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 he was he was great. Greg and I were talking about this the other day. You know, if we were trying to get our shit together to make the record at all, in between finally having some collaborative uh, relationship with Robert Hunter. And, you know, trying to get the, the musicians together and write the songs and the whole bit. We had a lot of people come down to try and sing this because we didn't know what even we were looking for. And the, the punchline on the whole auditioning process was it sure seemed like everybody that came and sang did a fantastic job. I mean, looking back on it, man, we had singers from all over the country, all over the world, people coming in from everywhere, and everybody sounded great. And then... Like the one guy who could stand up in front of a rock band and just do it was was Judge. It just he was completely unbothered by the fact that me and Bobby Vega were both trying to like literally blow him off the front of the stage with volume. Ordinarily, like when you're in a band with a vocalist, the band all gets like polite and turned down and like we got to make it right for the vocals, and we were not like that. We were like, we're already a band. Get up there and sing. And he'd get up there and just own it. It's great. How did you guys come to decide to go from being an instrumental band to adding a vocalist? What was what was that? Oh, man. I don't even know how to answer some of these how did you decide type questions. I don't think we were we were deciding. At least I was. Maybe some other people were thinking they are making decisions. I always thought that willful or goal-oriented about it. I, I, I think we, we took advantage of some opportunities that came up, and, and we missed some opportunities. But I, I think we just kept playing and added somebody that was singing instead of 
playing the trumpet or whatever. I don't think there was, was any planning or decision on how do you incorporate vocalists into a band. It was just like, get up there and sing. And I think as organized as, 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 as ever we were, we were all members of a kind of obscure religious sect called the Church of Marty. And Marty was our buddy Greg's best friend. Marty since passed away. But Church of Marty, man, you walked up the hill when the sun was going down and the moon was coming up. So you could see the sun and the moon at the same time. And then you smoked a joint and then you walked back down the hill. That was the entire thing. We're out on the coast out by, out by Point Race on this cattle ranch. And so we actually had the ability to like walk up the hill. Look, if there's the sun, there's the moon, you don't say anything, there's a light to turn and smoke it. You're like, okay. That was as organized as we ever thought, I think. Yeah. Well, along those lines, to, to the extent that it was linear, which came first? Was it the addition of a vocalist or did Hunter come to you guys offering to write for you if you could find a vocalist? Like, how, how, does, how do you... Oh, how yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Band was, end up the, with Robert Hunter. Greg and Hunter were at some party, and Robert Hunter knows that Greg has the band and instrumental bands. And so he says, Sarah, think about having some, like, words, songs <laughs> or something in the band. And Greg said something like, well, I don't know, got any? And Hunter was like, well, here, try this. So I, I, I think there was just some, some exchange of, of, well, here's some tapes of some music. Here's what kind of things we're playing. Here's the kind of things I'm writing. And then when we realized that we had some themes or some germs for some, for some bits that could actually work, then we had to start casting about for someone to sing them. You know, at which point, like I said, we found a hundred good singers, and we found one singer that could stand in front of rock band. I have to imagine. I mean, it wasn't like you guys were a pickup band looking for a singer. I mean, almost a decade in, sort of road-proven, powerful band. To go back to your earlier point, to sort of have the presence and the just the balls to get up and front that, that's a pretty impressive <laughs> It was actually really cool, and, and God bless Judge, but... He really did it with a smile on his face. And, and there was no quarter given. We just like, we kept right on just like smashing through everything. And, and it was fantastic. And he was fine up there, you know. If we played long enough, that he wasn't on stage long enough, then he'd like wander off and have three beers and then forget what he was doing. For most part. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like anybody would. I mean, I would. So, yeah, the hardest part, I, I guess, of having the singer in an instrumental band is like, keep a leash on the singer if you're going to play an instrumental thing because you never know what you're going to, what kind of trouble is going to get into you leave that the crowd. Yeah, it's not like he's not Miles standing on the side of the stage studying culture <laughs> while he solos. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't like that. There's a couple of sort of mysteries in the founding of Zero that I'd love to ask you about. And one of them has to do with Sort of the relationship with the Dead's Orbit and working with Healy as a sound guy or Hunter as a lyricist. Of all the musicians and the bands that are in that area and in that region that could possibly be in their orbit, like, why you guys? Like, what, what accounts for the relationship you had with that organization and that group of, of travelers? How did that come about? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's like it's almost 
ridiculously simple. We were just physically all in the same location. I, I don't I don't think it was any more than that. It wouldn't have happened if we'd been in Santa Cruz instead of Fairfax or, or West Marin or West Sonoma or something like that. I mean, that's where those guys were. And so we were literally, like if you had been in Fairfax back in the day, you'd walk past Nave's and Phil Lesher would just be sitting in there having a beer. You know, everybody was just like sitting around having a beer. Jerry Garcia to go in and have the breakfast joint. Everybody was, every everybody was there. It wasn't like how do you get to run in these people? They they were there. The very first person I met in California when I got there in the in seventies was Howard Danzig, was our sound man for many years, and credited on the on the album there. He did the sound that night, but he was doing sound for Hot Tuna at the time and we were driving to get to our little place that we just rented we had like 90 guys in this little tiny place and and there was howard on his bike next to the hot tuna truck with all the psychedelic kind of worm stuff painted on the side he was like oh wow cool and we we, we met him right then and that was like okay so we met the crew first basically because everybody's just hanging out and then pretty soon people go oh hey listen to this listen to these guys these guys are good you're just all in the same place it also sounds as though being musicians themselves, they're just sort of open and curious. Like, oh, who are these cats that are all of a sudden making a good noise? Like, I want to know about that. Yeah, I mean, it was this small town, you know, the whole Fairfax, Sarafell, Marine thing. Do you know the area at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... it's... Oh, all right. Well, then, yeah. Yeah, you get, you get the idea. Everybody was just, Everybody was just right there. It's interesting because I think it's hard to understand that when you think about other cities or you think about, in air quotes, like entertainment cities, a New York or a Los Angeles, where it's just not, it's not a lot of other bands that, or a lot of bands organizations that would have been in the fiber of the community that way. And it's unique maybe to that geography, unique to that band and its organization. It wasn't necessarily about like, at least not in that era, maybe later on, being separate from the community. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and and we got out there. We got out there in the seventies, and so it was. It was. I mean, I did anyway. I mean, I guess Greg had been there. I guess he was already there when I got there. I don't know. He moved from Ohio or something like that at some point, or Connecticut. I forget. But it wasn't like it wasn't like I was the new kid in town, and I was trying to get in Elton John's house or something like that. It wasn't like some gated community or a castle. It was like. It wasn't like that. People just said that everybody's had a little house in town. A couple of guys had a little ranch out, you know, on the other side of the bottom. It was just, it was, it was pretty easy, pretty friendly. What were you going out to that area for? Were you drawn to it because you were into that music scene? Did you follow a girl? Like what, what took you across country and, and plopped you out? In that oh, area? I went, that's a good question. I went out there with the Goodman Brothers. Billy and Frank. We had friends in California and we just wanted to go basically because we thought that that's where the music was. When I would hear something on the radio that I liked as a kid, you know, I heard Bill Kirchin, right, playing Hot Rod Lincoln. And I was like, ooh, that's good. Who's that? And then it was Commander Cody. And I said, where are those guys? And they were in California. And I heard Amos Garrett playing on that Maria Moldauer record. And I was like, this guy's amazing. Where is he? And it's like, that's where he was. He was in California. He's from Canada, but he's in California. I would, you know, I'd get up in the morning and try and make an egg and 
have my little cassette machine and listen to Blows Against the Empire and stuff. And it's like, I just figured California was where it was happening. And, yes. and it was right. And curiously enough, when I did get it together to go out there, I was enough of a geek that most of the players that I heard growing up in Pennsylvania that I liked, I, I found them and like sat down with them and like tried to learn from them. And, you know, I played with the two of the guys I mentioned. It was Garrett and Bill Kirchin. I got lessons with both of those guys. Played with their bands and went to jams and stuff. And so I, I I went for the music. I thought that was what was happening. And I did not follow a girl. Although I suspect a girl followed me and made it as far as Chicago. Or Detroit. I think she made it as far as Detroit, Marge. And then her Cadillac got stripped. She found it up on blocks and got juiced. Too heartbroken, and she went home. Well, it's interesting to hear the the artists you cited aren't the people that currently get cited, right? Like the Bill Kirchens of the world, and it's it's you were really tuned into like the freak side of 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 well, popular was like rock music. Real, there was some really specific kind of guitar music that I really liked. And Jerry Garcia turned out to be one of those people when I finally got hip to the to the dead. So I wasn't that into it, you know, as a kid growing up. I like the Allman Brothers. It was more likely I listened to the Allman Brothers or Santana, obviously Santana was there too. You know, or Black Sabbath or Johnny Wayne. I, I didn't get the, the Grateful Dead thing. Just kind of culturally right away. It was not what was happening in, like, at my high school. <laughs> So it took me it took me an extra minute, but man, there were so many good guitar players in the Bay Area. Terry Haggerty, one of the greatest players that ever lived, with his with the son of Champlin. And who else? Who else was out there? Jerry Miller with Moby Great, unbelievable. And did you know about all that stuff before you got out there? Like, how were you finding out about music back in Pennsylvania? Back then? Oh, like what were the what was the just the radio and, and there's there's radio and records. And then somebody's older brother, there was no internet. So it was just like, they're a little closer kind of family connections. But, yeah. you know, eventually, it was a little weird growing up because of, to try and get through the music because records were kind of expensive if you were a kid. The cool thing about vinyl and trying to learn back then and learn about music and, you know, absorption of those influences was that because it was expensive, a lot of the listening that I did was communal you had to get four or five guys in the room and you couldn't talk while the music was playing you'd be putting your finger up to your lips and pointing at the turntable and the measure came up like here it comes like listen to this we'd all be looking at each other freaking out pointing at the records but not making a sound so there's lots of that which that kind of a reinforcement into like what was cool about what you're listening to i was just lucky that there were enough people around that had enough music that I, I got exposed to, uh, to good stuff. I was a huge Roy Buchanan fan, too, and I'm sure Jerry was, I can hear, quoting Buchanan directly. And, and, and Mike Bloomfield, huge Mike Bloomfield fan. I think a lot of what good came out of Jerry as a player later on was probably inspired by or like came about like a, a psychic self-defense or something against Bloomfield, because Bloomfield was so good. When he got to the San Francisco Bay Area, I mean, I mean everybody else sounded like total naive amateur. He was so good. I think more than anybody, Jerry heard that. It was like, oh, the bar just went way up. 
I talked to Yarma about that a year or so ago, and he was just finishing the Bloomfield book, and he was really engrossed in the lore and going back and revisiting the music. And it's just like, holy shit, that guy was like complete next level. Yeah, he was good. So it's like, I think a lot of the really good guys, you know, just they're going to guitar level, if it's, if it's more just pure guitaristic and that, I'm the geek there. So it's like, I can appreciate even with somebody that doesn't like listening to as much music or doesn't play, but we can appreciate Jerry's playing just as much. But I, I would also be just as, as completely blown away by Peter Green or Dickie Bannister. Garcia's thing was just bigger, bigger in every way. We'll be right back with more of my discussion with Steve Kimmock after this break. And now, back to my discussion with Steve Kimmock. It's interesting that you mentioned the almonds and that, and that you just referenced Dickie, because when I was listening to the album, when I was listening to Not Again earlier this week, I had never thought about the almonds in the, in, 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 when I hear you're playing, but it really struck me this time, because I think of Dickie as like disciple number one of B.B. King, and I could hear some of that in your work, and I hadn't heard it before. And I don't know if it was just had, had stepped away from zero and coming back to it or the clarity of the recording, but... I really heard a lot of different strands in your playing that I didn't recognize in the past. And mm-hmm. I was curious if you were familiar with sea level. Did you, did you know Chuck? Of course. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really struck me that what I heard in zero is something I heard in sea level, which was like that country rock tradition or the Southern rock tradition, almost with the country taken out and just the jazz or the instrumental elements left. But it was, it just, I don't know, it really, it really landed for me in the last few days in a way it hadn't in the past. And uh, those C-level records are very under, under-known, under-recognized. Oh, hey, speaking of C-level, it's just, it's, it's just like that attitude on the, on the piano. If you have access to some music where you are, even before we get off this call, if you look up King Curtis' Patty Cake, Listen to King Curtis' Patty Cake. Holy shit, is that a good time? It's just got that rock and piano, and it's so good. King Curtis is another interesting one. Like a lot of the, a lot of the guys of that era, even Dwayne playing with them. Like it's really interesting. There, there's these figures that that are more influential than they are known, or they were known in their time. Well, the, the flame is, well, is really Curtis kept alive. Hugely influential, and and but again. And there's nothing you can compare it to. It's like Barry Manilow being Bette Midler's musical director, something like that. But, you know, like we wouldn't have had those great Aretha Franklin records or those grooves or those performances, that energy without King Curtis's band. And and he was obviously a huge influence on the Almonds, which were a huge influence on, on everybody, you know. The last time I saw you live was, was before the pandemic. So I lived just outside of Seattle, and I saw you up here with Hot Tuna. Such a great, great version of that band. And you alluded to, to running into the equipment crew and getting to know them through that whole thing. But I was curious more about your experience as a teacher and the, some of the work you've done at Fur Peace and the guitar, the sort of the teaching oh, that goes on okay. through that. And I was just wondering, do you like it? What's, it, what's that do for you? What, what, what sort of, what funny bone does that Oh, man, that's the most wonderful thing. The last time... I did a fur piece, a teacher for Yorma. It was virtual. We did it Zoom, which was a completely different. Never done that before, and we will deal with that later. But all the rest of the times that I've been doing it for years, you're there with the people in your room. Well, what I like about it is 
you're there for a couple of days, right? And you sit down with these people, and sometimes they're sometimes they're younger, sometimes they're older, you know. And they just want a good pure hit of something about the guitar that helps them move down the road, make them feel like they're having some progress or can enjoy it more or understand it better, have more confidence. And I mentioned before, I'm a geek. I'm like a nerd. I'm awful. I just like, all I've done for 60 something years is like, my nose on this grindstone with the guitar. So I sit down with these people who basically play on weekends or something. And they're horrified for like the first hour because there's no way that I can present it anything to them that it's not like, yeah, well, you can do that. So what? I can't do that. I don't know that. I can't think like that. I can't move my hands like that. Blah, 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 blah. And you just stay on it. And eventually just the whole idea that everybody's there together and that they're collaborating, that you're working with other musicians and there's nothing else to do but focus on this really cool kind of like puzzle box of a thing that just, just a joy to just work with, just to play with it, to try to move it around. And by the end of any of those sessions, everybody's just like so pumped that they got to spend that amount of just uninterrupted time with the guitar where they could work on it, ask questions and see other people's progress and recognize that, you know, everybody struggles with that. Or, oh, we can get good at this if we just work on it a little bit. It's a lot of fun because for me, as a teacher, it really puts the idea that you got to play with people and that the playing is about people. It puts that up front. That's, you know, that that's the priority, that that's what makes it work. One of the things I read in the, the little bio about you on the Fur Peace site was you talked about how one of your aims in the teaching is to help the student eliminate overthinking. And I wonder if you could tell me about, like, what, what does that mean and what's the danger in overthinking as a player? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it could be different things for different people. Like, for me, there's, like, if there's a goal involved, and I am, like, I'm, like, notoriously not goal-oriented, like, to a fault. People are beating me up all the time because I don't want to like get famous or something like that. But I don't care. I just want to play the guitar, right? But the goal for me in that playing the guitar is to get to a point in the music with the band, playing with the band, in the room with the people, where you really do just get to a get to a point, and you're so in the moment that time just stops, and the whole thing just like. Ooh, just opens up and you're there and you're not thinking anything else. It's like a flow state. You know, I mean, you could probably, like if you're running or something like that, you just get to the point where you can't think of anything else and you're just totally in the moment with the breathing and the whole body and everything. So that's like the goal. Right? So it doesn't matter what else is going on. If you're thinking about anything, you're obviously not in that place. You're just not in the moment. You're not in that flow state. Whether you're looking at the girl in the front row or you're thinking you got a, a rock in your shoe or you got a headache. As soon as there's any duality involved, as soon as there's, oh, I'm doing this and he's doing that, or, oh, they're doing this and I didn't do that, or whatever, as soon as you're thinking about anything, you're just not in the moment. But that's the whole point of the exercise is to try and figure out some way to, uh, to get in the moment. Now, there's specific 
stuff musically, and I don't, I don't want to bore you with the musical parts, you can cut this out, but if it's relevant to anybody, there are, as a guitarists, improvisational rock guitar is not like some centuries-old tradition. If you're doing it, you're more or less self-taught. And, you know, if you're more or less self-taught, you're more or less relying on instructional material and curriculum, whatever that's come up in the last 30, 40 years. Maybe. There's some of that that asks you to look at the instrument or to consider the relationship between like chords and scales and stuff in a certain way. Personally, then I think is using way too much of your head to try and learn something that's just like, it's just not, doesn't mean anything. Is it too academic, too intellectual? Well, yeah, but it's as if all of the music or all of the theory that you could know about it or anything that you could know about it that, that would be worth anything was just nomenclature. It's like, it's like naming system stuff. Yeah. And it's like, I don't care. I don't think that's what you're supposed to be focusing on. Well, like, in other words, if there was a chord, this is a C chord, right? You hear a sound, right? And so, oh, what's that sound? And then somebody will go, oh, that's a C chord. And you say, okay, well, what's a C chord? And say, well, it's C E G. And then you say, okay, what's C E G? And they say, that's a C chord, huh? And you're like, well, fuck, that's no help at all. You know, <laughs> why did I just go around the barn like that? Like, what is, what did I just hear? What am I hearing? What I'm hearing is obviously special collection of the major triad. You know what I mean? Like at that point, then it's like some physical relationship where you got the string right in front of me. It's like, oh, well, these are the lowest harmonics of the string. These are modes of vibration of the string. This is, I recognize this because it's in the sound already. And then when you realize that it's not like, it's not a naming thing, it's just how things vibrate. And you go, oh, okay, well, that's, this is somehow primary, and I will give it that respect and move on from there. And see if there's anything else that's also primary that fits with that. And then maybe that's an easier way eventually to kind of feel connected to it to have it just be naming system stuff that like the musicians will say the teacher would say well you learn it and then you forget it like they say with anything like designing airplanes playing surgeries well you don't learn it then you forget it you learn it then you internalize it and then you use it but if you're if you're learning anything that being encouraged to forget you didn't need to learn it in the first place i feel like i'm familiar with that line of thinking from being a fan of some particular jazz musicians. Like, I feel like I've heard Coltrane talk about that, this idea of like, you get so proficient and technically good with your theory and then you transcend it or then you set it aside. And it's like, okay, I know how to do all the things. So now I can do anything I feel. So the theory is more about putting it in the service of being able to articulate the thing yeah. you're feeling well, or hearing in your yeah. head. There are plenty of reasons to be really strict and repetitive about certain aspects of the naming system. Just so you know, the notes are on, on the instrument. Again, like the teacher would say, well, this is so you can communicate with other musicians. To which I would say, I don't need to communicate with other musicians. I need to communicate with the audience. What's the theory that allows me to connect to people listening? The other musicians can take care of themselves. You know what I mean? 
if they can't hear it, they'll go get another gig. Or if they don't like it, they'll kick me out. That's not important. The important part is what is there to communicate music? And how can I feel as if what I'm feeling that I think I'm communicating is being received? Even kind of like that, you know what I mean? Like, how do I limit the loss to translation in, in what I'm presenting? That whole thing, though, I mean, that, that kind of like philosophical kind of approach to it, that, it might not have anything to, to do with it. I, I, it, it may be as, as, as simple as just do your best to execute whatever it is you think you're supposed to be doing. And whatever you think you're supposed to be doing is just to be providing some balance in to what you're hearing in the room with the people. And if you can make good decisions about not playing too much or playing too little, you just get the right amount of stuff in there, it's probably okay now just execute it. It's probably closer to that in reality than anything too fancy. Yeah, I had some more line of inquiry along that that thread, but I think it's I think it runs the risk of navel gazing and sort of over analyzing. Go well, go ahead and, uh, and and I will cut it off at the knees in short order. Navel gazing, but go go ahead and just and say it because you know one man half to sit half the time is bullshit, and the other half of the time it's like absolutely essential. We just don't know what it is. Well, I appreciate that. I guess two questions. I'll I'll, I'll give you both of them because they're I can't untangle them. One is. Do you have other practices and techniques? You mentioned running, or are there other things you do that contribute to your ability to be present and to transcend the distraction? Yeah. It's a pretty grown umbrella. Yeah, yeah. Except, and this is important. At some point, there's there's no way. I like the way that you couldn't couldn't, couldn't separate them. You can't mm. separate the stuff that allows you to recognize or to move towards a flow state or to maintain it or even know what it is in the first place or to give it any value. I mean, you just, you can't separate that from everything else that you know are doing, right? And so people that tend to like really excel at something often have all these other ideas tied up in, into it that are like got nothing to do with the thing and the ideas are nuts and sometimes they're stupid and they're not even true and they got nothing to do with it but it's like the some part of the framework for the whole thing that makes it that makes it okay you know like i know a cat who's a, a fabulous musician plays every instrument sings Improvises, makes stuff up on things. Just fake. He's great. If I said his name, would go, oh yeah, he's fake. The dude's a total flat earth, like wow. ridiculous. But there's no way that you could present it with any evidence where you go, oh yeah, you're right. I don't mean to insult you if you're flat earth. But no. uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, but like his whole thing would like fall to pieces if he started pulling all those little parts out, like Aaron Rodgers. Right. What a jerk off, you know, the great quarterback. And then I see that, I, I saw the shit that went down with him. And I was like, man, what a selfish little idiot. And then I, I was wish like, you didn't know. Yeah, I wish I didn't know. And then I, and then I, I went through in my head just what I went through here. It's like, if he didn't think that way, he wouldn't be able to play that way. Those things are inseparable. He is a great quarterback because he is also that asshole 
that thinks that that's how you're supposed to deal with stuff. Like you can't separate that stuff. So it's kind of crazy. The idea that, that there's, that there's other stuff that you can do that would help you pretty well a flow state because you can catch like really perform super high level and then also have absolutely insane ideas that like are part of the foundation or part of the fabric that keeps that ability to execute that I love will be in that flow state. It keeps that like centered in their lives. So there's stuff that I do, stuff that I try to do, there's stuff that I try to be conscious of, but it means like being in the moment. Like, I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. I don't know what week it is. I don't know what month it is. I have to be reminded of the year if I have to like find something and say date it. I don't know. And like, I deliberately do not bother myself with additional information, like numbers particularly, it might interfere with my own internal numerology. It helps in my music. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's nuts. But I, I do that. And so to this day, I don't know what day it is. I don't want to know. Yeah, I was a little worried about that when I had to call you. I was like, is he going to pick up the phone? No, it's like, how do you get, like, how do you get in the flow state? And it's like, I don't know. Get rid of your watch. Get rid of your calendar. Don't care. Because as soon as you start caring about stuff or thinking that, you're going to have some influence on or something, then you're back into that duality. So part of the exercise is also recognizing when you're behaving, reacting like with your mind, like with the surface activity of your mind, your monkey mind, thinking in sentences. You're thinking in sentences and like reacting to, oh, he said I should do this. And I don't think I should do that. And like right there I go, if I'm having a good day, right there I just forget it. I just like, fuck it. This is stupid. Like this whole routine that I'm going through with this dude about something, it's got nothing to do with it. And then I'll let it go. And then, you know what I mean? He's just not like so distracted by crap that you can't be ready to be, be in it. And so what kind of crap? So you got to practice a lot here than that, which is also kind of crazy. You think at this point, being 66 years old, I could take a break and I can't. I beat myself up every day if I don't practice. I was practicing before you called. I'll practice when you want to be hang up. And I was curious about that, going back and listening to recordings that are, damn, they're 30 years old. What do you hear, and are you are you able to enjoy it, or do you hear the, the, the sort of primitive nature of a 30 year old? It's set up to my favorite joke about myself. Like, if I, if I record something... If I'm doing it like for a real specific reason, say I'm trying out a new speaker, right? And put the speaker in the effort, I'll go on the stage and I'll play the gig and I'll say, Charlie, let me hear the tape, let me hear the tape. And then I'll listen and I'll go, ooh, that's better. Or, oh, no, that's not it. I'll let it go. All right. If I listen to the table, you know, like a week later, a couple of days later, whatever, that I just done, I would listen to it and go, oh, geez, that was stupid. I was terrible. Why did I do that? What is wrong with me? How could I think that that was the right thing to play? Oh my God, I was really trying to do I thought I was doing this and I did that. And I hate it because I realized how far from my grand scheme that thing actually landed. And then I'll listen to the same thing like two years later and I'll go, why can't I play like that anymore? It's like, it's really bad. You just, you don't, you don't want to. You don't want to be me or in there like that because it's just it's hard to squat on that mirror. You just want to go and play, have a good time, 
Yeah, we make a record now and then. But that's it. Well, before I let you go, let, let me ask you one last thing. I love to ask specifically guitarists this question. And where does your tone live? Does it live in your equipment? Does it live in your hands? Where Where is your tone? Oh, I got to deal with this a lot. This is kind of a new idea, relatively new idea. The idea that you can get a tone or you make a tone where you call it production. And um, like a sound, how do you make a sound? When I was growing up, I thought a sound meant like a C chord. Like we talked about a sound. It was a musical sound. Some notes. I was a sound, right? And the electric guitar is a sound. The electric guitar is already a sound. You don't have to make it a sound. You just play it and it's an electric guitar sound. I hate that that's the case. But that's, that's the case. The guitar is already a sound. And then the room that you're in, the, the space that you're listening to, that's a sound. And then everything else is like, doesn't matter. It could be, it could be anything. And maybe you have a good day and it sounds great. And maybe you don't have a good day. And it doesn't sound great. But the guitar, electric guitar is already a sound. If you want to work on stuff when you're playing, like work on your tone matching or work on your tunes, you know, whatever. Yeah, I think the electric guitar is already a sound. And I think that when you're playing that guitar in a room, if it's a good room, it sounds good. doesn't matter what the amp is, doesn't matter what the strings are, doesn't matter what anything is. Steve, thank you for, for making time to do this. And I see that you guys are coming up to Seattle, so uh, I plan to be in the audience. And uh, congratulations on rolling out the record. And uh, well, Thank you so much, man. And, and, and thank you for taking the time to make this a thoughtful exchange of ideas. Thank you so much, Steve Kimmock. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.